Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week is something new. Last Friday, Jack Howard and I took to the stage at King's Place near King's Cross as part of the London Podcast Festival. We did our usual head-to-head discussion in front of a live audience. It was a riotous evening, and what you're going to hear in this podcast are the highlights of that conversation, including some questions from the audience. So sit back and relax and enjoy me and Jack Howard on stage live at the London Podcast Festival. Big your part up. Nice. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. How lovely to see you all here on a Friday at this late hour. Um, welcome to this is the Kermit on Film podcast. Some of you may have uh, heard it before. If you haven't, uh, I'll explain it. It's me on film, and uh, this is this is Jack Howard. Hello, uh, Jack. Jack and I have been doing this podcast uh, for a while. We we met. We met in the queue for a Star Wars movie. Well, um, that, that's, that's one of the first times that we properly, properly hung out. But actually, Mark, uh, we met because you DM'd me on Twitter. Um, you slid into my DMs and were like, you work at Radio 1, you're cool. Um, my son I, likes I you. I absolutely never said you work at Radio 1, you're cool. <laughs> like, that literally never happened. I could find the message <laughs> and let you know that's, that's word for word what you said. Um, and you wanted to come and bring your son in to show him around Radio 1 because he liked my YouTube videos and you were like, can I bring him in? And I was like, do you want to be on my radio show, Mark Kermode? And you were like, eh, all right, fine, if you, if you want. Yeah, wow. Honestly, you have a better memory. The way I remember it was we were standing in a Star Wars queue and uh, so this, this is the version that's going to go down in history as opposed to whichever fake DM you have with me saying you're cool. <laughs> I'm Inci- going to find it. And I'm Incidentally, gonna... I want to be quite clear. I was at Radio 1 before that, and I wasn't cool no either. No one remembers okay. that. Let's do a straw poll. How many people in the house remember when I was at Radio 1? Look at that. That's a, that's a full house. That's literally, that's a total, that's a clear majority. For the people We're leaving listening... Europe on a lesser vote than that, all right? So... <laughs> Incidentally, if you haven't got any internet coverage, I checked just before we came on, Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister. I'm sorry, if anything happens, I'll let you they know. They came in here to forget about that. Yeah, well. Um, so anyway, so I was standing in the Star Wars queue, as I think I said about however many minutes ago it was, and 
I can't even remember which Star Wars movie it was. It was The Force Awakens. It was, it was the return of, of, of Star Wars. And we were there like an hour and a half before to make sure that we had good seats. Yeah, because the thing that we, that despite the fact that you're half my age, um, the thing that we had in common was this paranoia about where we sat in screenings. Because yep. I have this whole thing that I don't do trapped seating. Okay, I only ever do aisle seats. I get completely phobic if I'm, if I'm not that any of you should feel trapped. <laughs> but. You're allowed to leave. Yeah, although it's obviously easier to leave. <laughs> they said a thing at the beginning. They said, yes, because when you're at an aisle seat, you just go like that. But then otherwise, you sort of, oh, excuse me, do you mind if I'm sorry? Um, when, when we were starting, they said, do you mind if latecomers come in late? And we said, no, no, of course it, didn't, it hadn't occurred to me at all. And then I started thinking, actually, do I mind if latecomers come mm. in late? Well, we'll find out if any yeah, of you. Yeah. Anyway, so we were in the Star Wars queue. We met each other because of the fact that we, that we had this shared obsession about worrying about where we sat in cinemas. And we started talking about movies specific, specifically about Star Wars. And what happened was I discovered that because... How old are you? I'm 27. 27. How so old you, are you? I'm 56. Right. Yeah, okay. So you were born... I said... I said <laughs> I said to Jack, we were doing a podcast about Bohemian Rhapsody, I said, did you ever see Queen live? He went, no. I was born in 1992. Freddie Mercury died in 1991. In fact, it was more specific than that. You brought up a concert in the 70s and you were like, did you not catch it? And I was like... <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, the first, the first concert I ever saw, a live concert I ever saw, was Queen in Hyde Park in 1975, which was like a free concert, and they were, they were brilliant. And because of that, and because we were enthusing about, uh, about Bohemian Rhapsody, it, I, just, I started momentarily, I forgot, and I started treating you as an equal rather than as a child. That's what, <laughs> that's what happened. You but know? anyway, we're in the queue for Star anyway, Wars. We're in the queue for Star Wars. We've got the same obsession about the thing. We start talking about Star Wars. We start talking about the fact that, that how you feel about Star Wars is affected by what you know how old you were when the first one came out in your case not born um, parents probably hadn't met parents probably not born either <laughs> and this then sort of developed into this ongoing kind of because there is a lot of stuff that we agree about but there's an awful lot of stuff that we don't agree about so anyway so a couple of weeks ago we did a, a, one of our podcasts in which we were discussing which Tarantino movies we liked we were doing a top three I did I was right and Jack was wrong and I was explaining to Jack why it was that his choices were completely Correct, Jack. Just for the benefit of the audience, yeah. what were your top three Tarantino movies? And incidentally, brace yourself for this because he's not kidding. Right. <laughs> he's only made nine. Um... Actually, that whole thing about he's only made nine. No, he hasn't. <laughs> he's made at least eleven and a half. If we're counting things like Four Rooms, which we ought to, it's like this kind of rewriting of history. The ninth movie by Quentin Tarantino. Quentin, I remember Four Rooms. I had to sit through it. That's at least half a movie. And yet he's fine with counting Death Proof. Yeah, I know, which is really bizarre. Why really? is he okay with that one? Yeah, anyway, so your top three movies were I... Death Proof, Four Rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember what I said, but I'm pretty sure it was like Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, and... Uh, what was it? I don't remember. What did I Kill say? Kill Bill. No, it wasn't Kill... No, it wasn't Jackie Brown. Oh, it was Jackie Brown, because we, we agreed it was the smart okay, choice. Okay, it was the smart choice. Okay, you only said Jackie Brown because I said it was the best one, and then you kind of agreed with me. Okay, so Jackie Brown is clearly the best Quentin Tarantino movie. Everybody knows that. It's the one Quentin Tarantino... Can we get a raise of hands? Do, do, do you agree Jackie Brown is the best Tarantino movie? Again, that's a full house. That's literally... That's a, some people had people sitting next to them who were putting their hands up for them, so they thought, I don't need to do that. 
Okay, how many... Okay, so the reason why we chose that as well is because Jackie Brown is the most sort of like... Late, he's like Tarantino's forgot that he's going, I'm making a film, and he's just made a film. And that's why we chose that as the most... the best Tarantino film, because it's the one where he's actually just making a film rather than actually telling you that he's making a film. Yes, and also it's the one in which, because it didn't do very well, he then went back to making the Tarantino movies, which, oh, come back to my room, I play my records, <laughs> you know, rather than actually making a film with... <laughs> He doesn't actually talk like that, you know, any more than Danny Dyer talks like that, but just that's how he sounds in my head. I haven't done Danny Dyer for ages. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so I, I think there is a, a very good argument for Jackie Brown being the best Tarantino film, although it did massively underperform. You thought Pulp Fiction was your favourite, which is a good, a good choice. Yeah, I, 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 I go all over the place with Tarantino, and since the podcast, I went back and watched the Kill Bill movies, or movie, as Tarantino would talk about it. Movies, two. Yeah. and Literally two movies. One yeah. movie, I didn't stop there, I went home. A few months passed, I came back, saw another one. That's two films. And it doesn't matter how you cut it, that's two films. It is. And I, and I forgot how good the first part is and yeah. how underwhelming the second part yeah. is. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. Like my, my stuff shifts around all the time, but I think that... The best stuff that Tarantino has ever done is in Inglorious Bastards. I think that the opening scene of that and the bar scene on, you know, the, in the bunker where mm. he's, Michael Fassbender is pretending to be a Nazi are the two best things he's ever made. Okay, but yeah. I think the surrounding stuff of, of Inglorious Bastards is a bit all over the place. Yeah. And so we said, okay, this was before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had played, before you or I had seen it. So we said, fine, what we'll do is we'll both go and see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then we will reconvene afterwards to have a discussion about it. Now, we haven't yet had that discussion. We've been saving this as a treat. For you. Um, for you. You're welcome. But the thing, there's two, there's two bits of housekeeping. That was really, you're welcome. That was kind of vaguely threatening, wasn't it? It was... <laughs> you are allowed to leave. <laughs> Two bits of housekeeping. The first one is we will do questions because we've got like 75. We've got less, we've already spoken. I haven't even started yet. We've 10 minutes in. We will do questions. If you'd like to do questions, there will be an opportunity to do questions. Let me... What are you doing? It's like a science project. What? I'm just thirsty. Not everything needs to be a criticism of... You're going to make it a young thing in a minute, aren't you? Or what is it with you young people? No, you know water? what I'm worried about is I'm 56, we're going to be on stage for now, and you're about to pour out a glass of water, and that will make me want to go wee. So, you know. Then don't drink, then. It's I'll not the drinking that's doing it, it's the watching you, it's the sound of the water going into the... Yeah, exactly, it's that joke, yeah. Oh, it's not even good. Yeah, OK. Um, so we will do questions if you would like to do questions. Um, this isn't a rhetorical question. Would you like to do questions? Is that no? <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask, I'm seriously asking you, would you like us to put aside some time at the end to do questions? Yes. That's better. It's like pantomime, isn't it? Okay. So we will do... <laughs> Damn. And that's the end. Thank you very much. We're not going to get better that than that. That was very good. That was very good. <laughs> so we'll do, we'll do questions and you can ask us anything you want at all, you know, within reason, but anything at all. But... We are going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, one thing I should say is that when we do this as a podcast, you know, that you not live in front of an audience, we do tend to do spoilers. So I'm assuming that most people here who really have a burning desire to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood have seen it. Is that correct? Yeah. Is there, anybody, is there anybody in the audience who is going to be mortally wounded if we start doing spoilers? Great, fine. Okay, 
Shall we start with the trailer? People can walk out. Are we, shall we start with the trailer just to put us in the mood? Why okay, not? and then you can start on what you think. All right, I'll, All right. I'll think while it's on. Okay. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Oh, Come, you Nazi bastards! <laughs> okay, I genuinely don't know what you thought. Jack? Oh, you don't know? No, I don't. Well, you haven't told me. That's how I don't know. I, well, I thought you might have an impression. Um, I loved this film. Oh. Um, I... Pause for effect. <laughs> um, I saw this and had no idea what to expect. I think I sort of went in with the expectation that it would be like another sort of return to something like Pulp Fiction, where it was sort of this patchwork, but going around Hollywood sort of thing. But instead, it's like this meandering, sort of on the surface feeling like nothing's really happening for the whole time. And until the very, very end, which is obviously the big thing that we need to really talk about, I suppose. But I think yeah, we are ending, going to talk about the end. So yes. just so you the ending, I think, made me reevaluate the whole movie, and then I saw it a second time uh, recently and loved it even more because I think that I settled into what it was that I was getting. And I think it's been said quite a lot about about this film, but I think it's Tarantino's most mature, personal, and sort of thought-provoking film that he's done that isn't just face value. What it says, what it, you know, it does what it says on the tin. It's, it's, there's more stuff going on there, I think, um, about him and how he feels and about this time and about what cinema is and about what cinema can do. And I loved it. And I think that Leonardo DiCaprio is really brilliant in it. I think that Brad Pitt is the coolest man in the world and proves that he's still got all the, uh, the you know, charm and, 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 He's just, he's just amazing to watch. I just love him. And I, I don't get all the criticism as well about Margot Robbie not having enough to do because I think that she's clearly supposed to be the background to, to this whole thing and she, she's never supposed to be anything more than that. And I actually think she's got just as much screen time. Maybe not exactly the amount of screen time as the rest, but she's certainly like presented as just as much of a main character. And I think she makes just as much of an impression on me. Like, the thing that comes to mind is the scene when she's in a bookshop and she just, I think she like scratches like a, a, a statue of an animal. I can't remember what, what it is, but then she just mentions that she's hit there to pick up a book and the book salesman just goes like, oh, now you're talking, that's a book. And she's like, I know. And you just get the impression that she's lovely and she's just this wonderful person and Tarantino just lets you fall in love with her and the whole time feeling tense about the fact that you are aware of what her real life outcome is. And then he pulls that rug from underneath you in a sort of, did you really think I was going to do that way? And that's what it, that's what it brings me to his uh, opinion about what cinema is and what film can do and that he can give you a happy ending and the fact that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the title appears over that last shot, I think is a really bittersweet thing to see because you, you go, oh, it, it ended up, it all went all right. But then you realise that this whole thing has been a fairy tale 
And that's what I mean by it making me reevaluate the whole movie is that everything I'd just seen made sense now. Like it wasn't like, oh, he's making Bruce Lee look like an asshole and uh, he, he's showing that like some guy can just beat him up. But he's not doing that. He's showing you that Brad Pitt is badass and this person is a superhero in this world because he, he can have a superhero in this, in this world and have him destroy the Manson family. And I think that all that stuff is just really, really good. <laughs> that's how okay. I feel about it. Okay. Over to you. Okay. I mean, I think that's, that's a really well-argued, if fundamentally flawed, case. <laughs> um, I, I, here's what I think. I think I agree with you about the end. I know that some people have kind of complained about the end, and I think that the whole idea that it's a fairy tale... When it was announced that Tarantino was doing a film that was even vaguely related to the Manson murders, my heart sank. Because as we all know, the history of the Manson murders in cinema is not a, not a proud one. And, uh, and you know, Tarantino's subtlety with such subjects isn't great. But actually the fact that what he does is the Inglorious Bastards ending, in which it's, this, it's the fantastical power of cinema in which you can rewrite it as a fairy tale, I think is actually oddly moving mm. and really and I can't remember I can remember because I can't remember the last time I was emotionally moved by a Quentin Tarantino film I can it's Jackie Brown um, which is a long time ago so I think that the ending which is the, one of the bits that really puts some people off is actually I think is the thing I agree that sort of justifies the film and you're quite right about the the fairy tale thing I think that's true I also agree with you about the criticism of Margaret Robbie's character not having enough to say is a, is a slightly strange one because it implies that actors only have presence on screen if they're talking. And if, like me, I mean, my whole thing is show, don't tell. What I want is a story. I want to know what's happening because of what somebody does rather than what they say about what they're doing. I think that whole action is character thing is true. And I think it's perfectly possible for her character to dominate a whole section of that story without constantly talking. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, Quentin Tarantino doesn't make things any better when somebody asks him about that quite honestly and he just gets cross with them and, you know, says, well, you know, I, blah, blah, blah. It's just one of his silly answers. So that's, you know, that's... I mean, it is, there, is, there is a touch of Quentin, just shut up, really, <laughs> you know, seriously. You're not doing yourself I think he said, famous. I reject your hypothesis. Yeah, which is kind of the thing which, which you, which, you know, which, yeah... <laughs> Pass me a wet fish that I might smack you around the face with it. Okay? <laughs> so I agree with all of that. I also think that the evocation of place is brilliant. The thing that I can't get beyond, and it is a perpetual problem for me, and I believe me, no one is more bored than me hearing me say this. The length issue comes down to indulgence. It comes down to the fact that there is no longer anyone saying, you know, you have to take that stuff down. And the most egregious stuff is when we're seeing the, the kind of rather bad television or B-movies that he's making. Tarantino will then go off and spend 10 minutes actually doing an episode of one of those things when you don't need that. There's, a, there's a, an old technique with cinema, this kind of kill your darlings, cut your lovies, which is you go through every scene and you take the scene out. And you see whether the movie works without it. And if it doesn't, you put it back in again. And, okay, it's a, you know, it's a sort of ruthless thing, but there are so many sections in uh, Once Upon a Time where you could literally take entire scenes out and it would have no consequence to the narrative whatsoever. The Bruce Lee scene, I think, really is a problem. And I, people keep apologising for it and people keep explaining... I'm not saying you're apologising for it. People keep explaining it to me. Oh, it's a fantasy. It's the thing which proves that he's a badass. 
It's a scene in which Bruce Lee's character is caricatured in a way that nobody else's character is caricatured and also sets up this preposterous idea, firstly, that Bruce Lee would have that fight, secondly, that the Brad Pitt character would win it, and thirdly, that that would be funny. And what I don't understand is why would you... I mean, funnily enough, I have heard some people argue that it's to do with the history of Bruce Lee's movies and that Tarantino is so fantastically cine-literate that what he's doing is something so smart that we don't notice it's happening, <laughs> to which the answer is, yeah, right. Um, it is, I think, a, the kind of scene that any really sort of tough editor would just say, that ha doesn't, you don't need, it has to come out because it's a distraction, it's a comic set piece that has got a slightly nasty edge to it. There is also this really weird thing running all the way through it, that the gag about lovable Brad Pitt's character is that he killed his wife. Mm -hmm. And this is a joke. The joke is, I don't want him on set. And, you know, when Kurt said, I don't want him on set, why not? Well, he killed his wife. So, well, you don't really believe it. Well, actually, I do believe it. And particularly at the moment, that's a weird gag to be making, that the thing that the lovable character has in his past is that he killed his wife. It seems like a really strange... And I, what I think is that Tarantino has a tin ear for it. I don't think he's put it... I mean, some people have said he's put it there as a kind of, you know, as a provocative thing. I don't think he has. I think he actually doesn't notice in the same way that I think that when he was doing the Bruce Lee scene, he was so involved in it that it never occurred to him that it could be, uh, it could, you know, quite apart from it not having a place there, that it could be taken as actually problematic or offensive. And I think it just never occurred to him that having a lovable character who might have killed his wife is an issue. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I think that when you can edit a scene as brilliantly as the scene that you mentioned from Inglorious Bastards when they're in the, in the bar and it's so tense, or the scene at the beginning of Inglorious Bastards when, you know, when Christoph Waltz's character comes in and that whole scene plays out when you know that people are hiding. If you can do that in a scene, why can't you do it in a wider movie? Tell me this honestly. Was there no part of you that thought this is way too long? Um, so actually, here's a true reaction, is that when it ended, when it, when it uh, did that final jib shot uh, of him going into um, Sharon Tate's house and it came up once upon a time in Hollywood, I flinched and went, is that, is that the end? I genuinely turned to the person next to me and said, is that the end? And she was like, yes. <laughs> because and I was she like, keep going. Like, like I, wanted to see, I wanted to see more. I was just sort of so invested in it. And one of the things that, I, I mean, I think it's a... Did you really do that? Did I you really turn to the person and go, is that the end of the film after three hours? I, went, I flinched. <laughs> I literally flinched. Did you went, wake up? Did you... Did you <laughs> <laughs> you went, the last time you looked no, he was no, having no, a fight no. with Bruce Lee and then suddenly he's walking into oh, what happened what I miss <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think there's a difference of opinion in terms of the Bruce Lee scene because I, I, I also like I have a problem with the fact that the Bruce Lee family have come out and had a go at the film for turning their family member into a commodity after they've lived their entire lives turning him into a commodity. It's just very strange to me that they do that. But like, um, I think that that scene to me doesn't bother me because I know the whole thing's, I know the whole thing isn't real. I know the whole thing, like that's what I mean about the fact that reevaluating the whole movie being a fairy tale. I'm like, I don't see a problem with the fact that he wanted to use it in that way. I guess you're right in terms of like no other character is simplified in that way. No. I suppose Sharon Tate is 
just an angel. Like, she's wonderful, but I don't know, there's nothing more complex about her than she's lovely, which is fine, but... I, I, no, I don't think she is that simple. I think the scene when she goes into the movie house and watches her own movie, she's, it's, it, it's really complicated what's happening. It's that thing about she's uncertain, she feels like an imposter, and, and none of this is through words. This oh, is yeah. all through what you see. I think that's lovely. And then when the first person laughs at the gag and she's, oh, yeah. they're laughing at my what, gag. That, that fits with what I just said, that, like, you're watching her the entire time and thinking that she's adorable and that she's lovely and she, that she's got... There's no, there's not a bad bone in her body, which might have been true of the real person, um, but we don't know. But in the film, her role is to be the angel of Hollywood because we know that her death caused a complete shift in 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 uh, in Hollywood. Okay, what's well, so, okay? Well, so, so the other philosophical point about this is it's a film which basically says hippies they're rubbish. Um, you know, uh, old kind of. And for a start, Manson wasn't a hippie, mm. and it, there is this kind of this popular. It's nothing to do with hippies. It's absolutely not. So it seems like a really weird kind of Quentin Tarantino, you know, let's go out and punch a hippie movie, mm -hmm. which is kind of like, why? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. many other things that you... So I think, again, that's to do with him fundamentally having a tin ear for those things. I mean, I often say I have a tin ear for comedy. I think... For somebody who is so smart and so sharp in terms of their cinema knowledge, in terms of their knowledge of music, which is immense, and you know, it just it, it really astonishes me that he doesn't see or hear things in his films. Mm -hmm. I know people say, oh, he puts them in there to be provocative. I actually don't even think he does. I think he doesn't notice. I think he's, you know, he's so involved in what he's doing at the moment that he's doing it that he can't step back, which is why I think what he actually really, really needs is a, somebody else's script or somebody else standing over him with a big stick saying, 90 minutes, exploding helicopter, that's it. You <laughs> but, know, and but that's then you'd the, be that's complaining the, about that, though. You'd be like, you'd you, you saying that, like, there's no... You know, you'd be complaining about the fact that there's no voice in it, that like he's not able to sort of shine. I, what I like about this is that nobody else could have made this film, and there's no way it could have been his first film. Like, there's a reason why Reservoir Dogs is, like, obviously like his first go at this, and then now he's allowed to do whatever he wants. So like earlier when you said that, oh, you could lift that whole thing out and it adds nothing. Like you could lift the Bruce Lee thing out and it adds nothing. I agree as well. Like you could probably take out. Uh, when it cuts to um, Leo's character doing you know, burning the Nazis up, all you need really is to show him doing that section, yes. doing that bit. But he wants to sort of let you live in this for a bit longer and wants you to sort of like, you know, almost bask in it and, and be here for a while. And it's not about driving plot forward this film. It's about sort of just sort of uh, being there and enjoying that atmosphere. And I and I personally really do. And okay. it, there's something about it that really captures me, even though it's not constantly moving plot forward. Okay. When we do questions, mm. I'm going to take we're going to take questions about this, and I'm, I'll be very interested to know what anybody else because I I know an awful lot of people absolutely love the film. Yeah, it's been very very divisive. I've, I've, it's been fifty fifty whenever I'm speaking whenever I'm speaking to people. But about the people it. who love it really really love it. So you know, the, and also the thing about Tarantino having things in his movies that could easily be taken out that dates right back to Pulp Fiction when the entire you know, butch. Oh. It's just like that's fine. Anyway, that whole, um, I know it is. That is. I get angry <laughs> just thinking if, about. If you it. haven't seen Pulp Fiction in a long time, go back and watch Pulp Fiction because there there is like a whole section that we're just like, no, just take that out. Not the watch. You obviously keep the watch in. Oh yeah. Don't lick it. Um. So. <laughs> Sorry, that's an Eddie Izzard gag. Um, <laughs> now, I know that you wanted to segue seamlessly oh, yeah. into, uh, in 
into school say do you want to show the trailer for do you want to show the Joker trailer or do you want to well I wanted to sort of bring up Joker because I thought it was interesting that there's this new movie coming out that's clearly very inspired by the, the works of Scorsese and in fact I think to begin with Scorsese was on to be an executive producer of Joker okay. and now isn't okay um and it was going to be a sort of little segue into Scorsese, but you've just called out that we were going to do that. So now it's now, now they all know what no, we're doing. No, it's fine. I'm just sort of flagging it up at the beginning. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Are you calling me the Wizard of Oz? Because if so, I'm taking that as a compliment. <laughs> shall we? Shall we see the trailer for Joe? Then we'll pretend that I didn't say that, and then you can like segue seamlessly into it, and it will make everybody think, "Wow, what a professional broadcaster! He must have learned his trade at Radio One." <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> bothering my kid sorry Arthur I have some bad news for you <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting you don't listen do you you just ask the same questions every week how's your job are you having any negative thoughts all I have are negative thoughts. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they can do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. <laughs> So awful, isn't it? For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. You think this is funny? <laughs> is this a joke to you? <laughs> You can, you can oh. applaud it. It's worth it. <laughs> Somebody's excited. Okay, I th so I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it yet. No, no, okay. no. I think that I want it to be absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Are you completely hyped up about it? I'm, I'm so intrigued by it. I am worried about it. Because? I, because? Well, well, we, we, we've, we've had so many discussions about this in my friend group recently because... In your friend group? <laughs> What was wrong with that phrase? Well, it's, it's, it's in the playground. Well, me and my mates it's... have been talking about it. Yeah. Jesus. Um, <laughs> we've just been talking about the fact that, like, when... Because this is clearly inspired by, like, things like Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Yeah, and... The King of Comedy stuff looks really yeah. clear there, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even just, like, the sort of the dirty sort of grittiness of like how they're shooting Gotham City and that reminds me of that sort of ugh, gross looking New York from Taxi Driver and just this story about a lonely sort of 
unhinged person who's slowly going to start, I don't know, like doing something about that. It reminds me of, of, of those films. And I, the, the sort so of you're thinking it's like a kind of God's lonely man thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And my question sort of it, of it is like, I don't want it to be, do you remember when Rob Zombie did a remake of Halloween? Sadly, yes. Yeah. And he sort of did like a checklist of like, oh, okay, so he's got abusive parents, he's, uh, he's, he's bullied at school, uh, and that's why he became a serial killer. That's why he's Michael Myers. And it's like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, that doesn't, that, that's, I don't want justification as to why this person becomes the Joker. Yeah. I don't want it to be like, oh, his therapist doesn't listen to him, people beat him up in the street, and now a person's made fun of him on the telly. I'm going to become the Joker. Like, I don't want that. I want it to be a complex, interesting sort of study about somebody who's you're not sure what's going on there and and i don't want it to be a film that can it will be no matter what but i don't i'm worried about it being misinterpreted by the wrong people i don't want it to be waving the flag for these internet trolls who can see that someone like the joker as somebody who speaks for them these like lonely men who go yeah yeah oh, right. do you know what i mean like it's 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 something about that that i am concerned about and I would rather it just be, <laughs> I don't know, like, I just don't want it to be that. I don't want it to be this justification for somebody doing terrible things. Do, I, okay, do you think, so and this isn't a facetious question, do you think of it as a comic book movie? Technically, yeah. yeah I mean, it, technically it is, isn't it? Um, I suppose we, we're all aware that eventually his nemesis is going to be a man who dresses up like a bat, so it's going to be a bit strange to see this drama <laughs> about somebody like that. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I'm all for think, things being taken seriously. We've can I had ask many a conversations sorry, about Can I ask a really night. ignorant question? Yeah, go on. Do, does his nemesis end up being... Because all I know from the trailer oh, is that it's that character. No, well, I, no. I don't know what the rest of the context I, of it is. My, my thoughts on that is that I think we're going to see Bruce Wayne as a child in this. Because the, the person in that trailer who says... Um, do you think this is all a joke and punches him in the face that's Thomas Wayne who's Bruce Wayne's, fa Bruce Wayne's father okay. so technically yes it's all based in comic book movie stuff but it feels like it's just going we're going to just take this thing and really we're going to use it as inspiration to tell this story that hopefully is a reflection of what's going on in our times right now and is relevant to now because I guess the, 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 sort of the headline of my concern is I don't want it to be a movie that shouldn't exist right now I don't want it to be for somebody who could potentially take it as something as a dangerous message okay does that I, make sense yeah i mean i'm surprised i'm genuinely surprised to hear that anxiety but yeah. I mean, just on the basis of having not yet seen the film or the the, the the trailer that's not what i that's not where i thought you would have gone with that at all mm. um is there any part of you that worries because you're very very attached to you know to heath ledger and mm. everything else? is there any part of you that thinks you can't revisit that territory no uh, i think i think that it's they are what a lot of people have called like modern day Shakespeare where you can just have like a different person have a go and they're so popular that nobody cares that Jared Leto was the Joker two years ago everyone's forgotten thank god but <laughs> like I'm I'm so pleased that someone as talented as Joaquin Phoenix who's probably the greatest actor in the world I think like every time he does something He's pr I don't know, like he's, there's something about him that is just every time he's just something different. So somebody as talented as him to take on the Joker, which for some reason as well, like the Joker has become this thing that's synonymous with really brilliant, talented actors that are also synonymous with the Academy Award, that everybody 
who's played it has got something to do with the Academy Awards. Like, you have to be that good to do it. Um, well, we're including Jared Leto from before rather than the... Yeah, yeah. not, yeah, not for like He won the Academy Award and then he played the Joker. And then he played the Joker and then he complained that most of what he did wasn't in the film, yeah. which actually may well be true because what he did in the film isn't very much at all. It is a terrible film. It's, it is a terrible it's film. It's maybe one of the worst films I've ever seen. Yeah, no, yeah. really genuinely terrible. On the subject, if we're going to do um, best and worst, and since you brought up Scorsese, which well done for segueing that in very nicely. <laughs> you were asking me loads of questions of... Come on, that's your no, fault. Top three Scorsese. <sighs> Can yeah. you go first? I, I, I yeah. don't like the pressure. Okay, so top three Scorsese movies. Bear in mind, I haven't seen The Irishman. We've got a trailer for The Irishman, which we might show in a bit. So, top three Scorsese movies. Clearly, Scorsese's... Should I do this three, two, one that way? Which way do you want it? Well, I, I want you to finish with your favourite. Yeah, so three, two, one. Yeah. That's really how that works. <laughs> um, okay, uh, third Mean Streets... Not least because I think the rubber biscuit sequence is one of the best things I've, in terms of you know filming somebody you know woozily getting drunk, and I think the atmosphere of it is absolutely brilliant. So number three, uh, Mean Streets. Number two, Age of Innocence. I think actually because I think it's it was so unexpected and it was so it really wasn't the film that I expected him to make, and I thought it was just fantastic. I love the way it looks. I love the performances. I love the rest restraint. And number one, by a country mile, King of Comedy, which I think is, is absolutely... That's why I think that trailer is interesting, mm. because it's got De Niro effectively doing the other character, bring, and, yeah. you know, and him being the character that is sort of Rupert Pupkin. And I think anything that has a connection between Joker and Rupert Pupkin, I find interesting. But I think King of Comedy... King of Comedy is the, the one that I go back to all the time and think that film is absolutely perfect, and mm. it's so prescient, and it's so terrifying. And everyone talks about the Travis Bickle character, but actually Rupert Pupkin is scarier than Travis Bickle. I think. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, why King of Comedy over Taxi Driver? Because King of Comedy is the film that addresses that idea about, you know, this somebody will, is willing to do anything to become famous, and as a result of that, they become famous. And that whole thing at the end, when, you know, when the echo chamber of laughter is that he has won, he has got himself on television by kidnapping somebody... And also, I think that people talk about the boxing sequences in Raging Bull. They say, isn't it brilliant that Robert De Niro actually did all those boxing sequences? Which it is brilliant, and Robert, uh, Raging Bull's a brilliant film. But the stand-up comedy act that he does as Rupert Popkin is genius. And what's genius about it is it isn't good and it isn't bad. It is it's right in the middle. right in yeah. the middle of all right. It's and got a few good chuckles in it. Yeah. And not unlike this show. It's, sli it's slightly awkward and it's slightly stilted, but it's not terrible, but it's not great either. And, you know, apparently he went and you know, did the usual, you know, uh, De Niro thing that, you know, he went and did stand-up comedy in comedy clubs to kind of... And I would... I can't imagine what that must have been like because he, what he was trying to do was to not be very good. Mm -hmm. And I do think the Pupkin Act is brilliant. My favourite aspect of King of Comedy is that it keeps sort of shifting between this sort of fantasy and reality, that when he's on the train going to... Um, uh, who's, who's, who's the talk show host? What's it? Jerry Lewis. Yeah. When he's going to Jerry Lewis's house and he's there, you're like, oh, this is all the fantasy. Yeah. And then it isn't. And you, no, they it, really are going to Jerry and Lewis's. And they really are. <laughs> and, and I love that it plays with that, like, th that narrative in that way, so that when the end hits and he becomes massively famous and his world, you know, he's book's gone crazy and he's super famous you're like I don't know 
if this is real or not. I don't know, like, if it's all in his head or if, if it really happened. Because it, does it really matter? Like, I, I, I like that a lot. And it doesn't feel like anything else that Scorsese has ever done. Top three Scorsese, Jay. In order, three, two, one. Going from the one you like the least yes, to the one you like the most. At the Best one last. That's right, yeah. Right, understood. Um, okay. Bring it on. I think... Uh, okay, all right. So it goes Wolf of Wall Street. At three. At three. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah, That's okay. a good way to win the crowd over, isn't it? Okay. okay. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Taxi Driver. The Departed is my favourite Scorsese film. Look at the murmurs in the crowd. And here's something to get you on side as well. I don't rate Goodfellas. I don't rate it. And that was the moment that you lost the room. There you go. <laughs> but like, okay. no, I, 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 I need to revisit Goodfellas because everybody obviously loves it. And I know that Wolf of Wall Street is essentially Goodfellas, but for the stock Stupid market. people. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're, we're just showing like we're just showing the difference in in generation totally. No, it is. It, there is a job. Okay, so top three. Your top three of Scorsese films includes Wolf of Wall Street and The Departed. And The Departed. Yeah. So you I'm, I'm, genuinely, Jack, tell tell me why The Departed is my favorite. The film for which he won the Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which will become oh, a pub quiz question by that. In years. <laughs> Sorry, he's so shocked his shoe fell off. But, <laughs> Have you got a problem with the fact that he won an Oscar for that movie? Pardon me? Have you got a problem with the fact that he won an Oscar for that Well, film? the problem I've got is that the one reliable thing about the Oscars is they always go to the wrong thing. And one of the great pub quiz questions is, what film did Scorsese win the Oscar for? Raging Bull? No. Taxi Driver? No. Mean Streets? No. All the Brilliant One? No. Departed. The one that no one can remember. <laughs> and the one with a title that even people that like it go, the one that it's, what's it called? The, 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 oh yeah, The Departed. Tell me why you think The Departed is his best film. I, 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 I can't argue for it in terms of like, this, this and this are better than this, this and this. It's more like, I saw it at a time where it was unlike I'd ever, anything I'd ever seen. How yeah. old were you? Oh, that's not a rude question. Genuinely, no, no, how old no. were you? I, I think I saw it when I was in uni, so I must have seen okay. it when I was like 18, 19 years old. Okay. So Old enough to know better. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about the fact that it's like, it's editing is sharp, but it's like long. There's this, this, like, the, 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 well, yeah. <laughs> that, the, the opening sequence is 15 minutes before the title hits. The performances are all amazing. Mark Wahlberg's good in it. And Mark Wahlberg is brilliant in it. I will yeah. give you, I think Mark Wahlberg is actually brilliant in that He's film. He's actually good in it. Yeah. Jack Nicholson's amazing in it. I adore the opening with uh, him operating in the shadows. I think it's so theatrical and obvious like everything in the movie is obvious like everyone complains about the ending with the rat running along you know, it's a simpsons joke of like the rat symbolizes obviousness it's <laughs> it, it's it, it is it's all very on the nose and i know this but i saw it at a time where i hadn't seen anything like it so it sticks with me and i like all the the tension of who's the rat and who's who's the copper and people on swapping sides and i think it's just very good, although Ray Winston's rubbish in it. Okay, um, you've seen Raging Bull. I have seen Raging Bull. Okay, and you genuinely think The Departed is better than Raging Bull? 
Yeah. Okay. Um, have you seen the original films that The Departed is based I on? I haven't. Okay. Unfortunately, no, I haven't. Is, it is well worth visiting. I mean, they're very, what, very... What's it, what's it called? The Infernal Affairs. Yes. But, but, it, but they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, and actually, there's no reason why you can't remake something and do it better anyway, because, you know, as we all know, Sorcerer, I think, is arguably, a, you know, a, a perfect... Well, I think it's at least as good as Wages of Fear and I think the Richard Gere remake of Breathless is actually better than the original um, and Scarface is a remake yeah yeah exactly fine so there's not a problem with it being a remake but it is a weird thing that of all the Scorsese films Departed is almost the least Scorsese-ish and when you sort of were dismissive about Goodfellas which is perfectly fine because Goodfellas is a revered text and it's you know it's it's good to be uh, but Goodfellas is a really brilliant film that holds up to repeated viewings, and Departed is fine. It, but Departed is like, it's the it, the reason the reason Scorsese won the Oscar for Departed was because they had run out of reasons not to give it to him. They'd missed they'd missed Raging Bull, they'd missed Taxi Driver, all the things that he should have won for they'd missed, and they had to do it. And so it was like, okay, fine, this time, to the point that even Scorsese was making jokes about it on the Oscar stage, about, <laughs> are you sure? Can you check the envelope? Are you sure? I mean, I don't think The Departed is a bad film. I think it's a perfectly adequate film, but I think it's weird because it's like choosing, um, you know, it's like choosing the holding pattern movie as the best one, which is, which, which, which is odd. But then it may just be that I didn't get what you got out of it, which was the visceral thrill of seeing that kind of thing. It is, it is all like the, the theatrics of it. Like the thing that just came to my head just now is I love the fact that there's an X every time someone's about to get killed. Like just that is like not a reason to like the film. Okay. But there's all these details that I'm charmed by. And like I said, it's, it's, it was nothing. I'd never right, seen anything okay, like right. it. Okay, here's the, here's the, here's here, we here we go. Where do you stand on Shutter Island? It's rubbish. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah, no, it's it not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's rubbish. Why is it rubbish? Because I saw it. When, when did it come out? I thought you were about to say, because I say so. I literally thought I that was where so. that sentence was going. Next. Yeah. When did it come out? Ten, ten years ago. About ten years ago. So I was... But yeah. in my head, everything came out ten years ago. Because right. after, you, after you've gone past 50, everything was ten years ago. I, I think it came out in like 2007. Okay, fine. Something like that. So I... I mm, yeah, I was about 16 or something. Yeah. And I remember watching it and immediately going, I know what the twist is. Like, I, I, know, I know what the twist is going to be. And then the whole film played out, and I was like, yep, yep, yep. And, and it's so predictable. Hmm? 2010 it came out. 2010. Right, okay. So nine years ago. Right. I was close. Yeah, you were. Yeah, okay. Well done. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can still count. Uh, and <laughs> I, there was something about just letting it play out, that I, and I didn't find any of it compelling or interesting. Okay. Was, so and, and something that really bothers me, and I think Scorsese is quite bad for this, is continuity errors. But maybe that's on purpose. Who, who's to say? But it's, it just really bothers me. I remember there's a scene with... It's a film in which the f- film is playing out in the head of a deranged character, sure. and you're worrying about continuity errors. But there's errors. continuity... Yeah. I mean, that's what I was focusing on, because it wasn't compelling me enough. But I just remember there's a scene where somebody's leaning against a bar and then it cuts and he's not and it cuts and I'm like Scorsese made this surely he can notice like if you can't handle small things like that it, it's, it's, it's I, I just feels like there's not enough care involved in it but maybe it was on purpose to make you feel a little bit like you're oh what's real and what's not uh, uh. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so I think, I mean, I love Shutter Island. I think why? It's, why? Because I think it's a really, I mean, that thing where you said I can see the twist coming. Yes, of course. That's the whole point is you can see the twist coming because it's why one of those. Why is that good? Because it's one of those movies in which that, it's, it's the ninth configuration. Shutter Island is basically the ninth configuration, right? And the ninth configuration, which is one of my favorite films of all time, which I know for a fact Scorsese has seen because when I was in the editing room with Thelma Schoonmaker and I said, you know, that film really reminds me of The Ninth Configuration, and I bet Mr. Scorsese has seen that. She said he's seen everything, and he will definitely have seen that. That whole, it's, it's you know, it, it's this, that plot about you're in an asylum, and, ooh, are they a patient, or are they thinking, that's the oldest plot in the world. Yeah. It's, it, it's fine, but spotting the twist isn't genius. That's like, it's like, you know, I went to see a Shakespeare play and I knew that the guy was going to die in the end of it. That's what happens. Yeah, but it doesn't but mean what, that it's what, like, what, why does that need to, why do I need to see that again? Because it's the way in which it plays out. It's the, it's the, it's the overwrought kind of joy of it. It's like a kind of pulpy B movie, but mm-hmm. made with kind of A movie. Because I think that's the least Scorsese, Scorsese film, is Shutter Island. That feels like the least him. No, the least Scorsese, Scorsese film is Kunden. That is the one which, in which there are large sections of it in which you think, I actually really want Joe Pesci to come in here and go, funny how, because this really, <laughs> this really needs somebody to pick the pace up. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... <laughs> you haven't seen Kunden, have you? No. No, okay, you really don't need to. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> there was, I, was, I remember it was really funny because when Kunden played in, I mean, it's a perfectly fine film, but it's just, I remember when it played in Cannes and there was all these people saying, yeah, it's great. It's great. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so exciting. The tension. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. So, um, I mean, we probably got a few more minutes before we, before, we, before we do questions. So, I, in terms of, so Wolf of Wall Street, completely. I, I just yeah. Know. You hate the Wolf of Wall Street. Don't I you? don't. I, I think it's really indulgent, it's and I think it's, you think it's on the, you think it's on the wrong side of the line, don't you? I don't, do. I think that there are whole sections in Wolf of Wall Street in which he is, in which Scorsese is just reveling in the stuff that Jordan Belfort is enjoying. Mm-hmm. I think that the film is far too easy on Belfort, and I know people say, oh well, you know, the thing is he's portrayed as, you know, the scumbag that he is, but he isn't. I, I mean, I know I that's, that's, part, that's partly a kind of narration thing because you can say it about Clockwork Orange because Alex is our, you know, you yeah, know friend yeah. and humble narrator, then okay, fine. But I think the movie enjoys much too much the... I mean, there is... There are all, the women characters in it are all absolutely relegated to secondary roles. And there is one scene in it 
in which which is really interesting when he's doing when he's talking to everybody and the 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 the, the uh, one of his co-workers a woman says I have to say that you've been really important to Mike. And she suddenly says this thing about all these things that he's done for her career. And you go, when? I've been watching this film for two hours. When did that happen? Why didn't I see that story? Because I was in the toilet with everyone else, you know, doing cocaine, which is kind of only interesting up to a point. <laughs> you know, not the doing cocaine, the watching people do cocaine, you know. So don't do drugs. Um, <laughs> I say that incidentally as somebody who's never done drugs, so I don't know. Maybe let's not go there. <laughs> Maybe um, try drugs. So, um, so, I, so, I so, I so I think it's indulgent. I think yeah. it's I think it's savagely indulgent. So I think the mistake of Wolf of Wall Street is having Jordan Belfort cameo at the end. Yeah, that's a, that is an like abs- Stanley yeah. in a Marvel film. Yeah, that's weird to do that because we're meant to go. Oh, there he is, the crazy that's guy the real who, one. who ripped all those people off and was an absolute scumbag. And he's, still, he's in the movie. Yeah, yeah that's nice. Um, that's a weird thing to do. Um, and actually, what you're bringing up about Wolf of Wall Street is what I'm worried about with Joker. Okay, is that I think that I can watch that and go, this looks awful. This, this, this is the downfall of a person who went from this wide-eyed 20-something-year-old and turned into this complete, utter arsehole. Like okay, he, but, but, but we, we, you, we are making that on the assumption of a trailer, and as we know, yes. I mean, the trailer for Prometheus was pretty good. So, you know, it's, it, things can go either way, yeah. right? But th- this is what I'm saying, is that like, I can watch Wolf of Wall Street and understand that it's, I'm watching the downfall of a character and okay. it's not supposed to be something I should aspire okay. to. Yeah. But at the moment, if you go on the Tube in London, there are adverts for a sort of theatrical experience of, you can be the Wolf of Wall Street. And I'm like, hang on, are we... That's not what we're supposed to be getting from that, is it? We, we, is it, is it's, it, is it it's a stage show. It, no, it's it's you are you get taken through a sort of like uh, an experience, and you get to be okay. So are you this, are, are you making this up, or is this true? This is I a genu- real thing. What is it? It's it's based. Do you all know about this? Has everyone has anyone seen Why this? Why has nobody mentioned this to me before? What? Why do you want to do it? No, we should do it together. No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yes. No. <laughs> No, what it says, so tell me. I, so I genuinely, I don't know I what don't this know is. I don't know really exactly what it is. But all I know is that there's a, there's a um, what, what's it called? It's like a, 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 an immersive experience, yeah, where you get to be like the Wolf of Wall Street and you're taken through an evening. And it's just... It's just um, what, snorting cocaine off toilet walls? Yeah, I guess. But I, I don't know what it is, but I see it and I'm like, this is, the, this is the wrong message to take from this. And that's what I'm kind of worried about with Joker is that the wrong people will watch it and go, yeah, I, I want to try that. Okay. Has anybody done this Wolf of Wall Street experience? Does anybody have? Does anybody know anyone who's done it? Yes. Uh, what, did, what did they? Have we got? Have we got a microphone? No, no, oh. so no, no, no. This has gone in a different no, no, direction. So, sorry, it's just because because for the for the purpose of the podcast, otherwise we need to be. Uh, where 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 are you? There. Just pass the. Sorry. So you so you know someone who's done this thing? Yeah, it's not. It's not a very interesting answer because they weren't allowed to tell me what happened. Oh. <laughs> Is that for legal Did they reasons? actually not tell you what happens? I said, how was it? What happened? She said, I couldn't possibly tell you. We're not allowed to tell you. Okay, but it was, from, the way she, from the way she said it... <laughs> it's immersive experience. <laughs> From the way she said it, did it imply that it was a good thing that she wasn't able to tell you about or a bad thing that she wasn't able to tell you about or just something that was so dull that there was nothing to tell you about? Um, She'd never seen the film. (laughs) 
And there, so ladies and gentlemen, in a nutshell. And when that looks like it would be fun. <laughs> I went on a date and didn't see him again. So. Brilliant. Okay, well, there. <laughs> <laughs> that was wow. an interesting answer. I'm sorry, I, that really wasn't expected at all. What a brilliant thing. No, I don't want to see the Martin Scorsese uh, Oscar-nominated film. Let's go and live the experience in which you can be the Wolf of Wall Street. Wow. Yeah. But that was it. She went on the date and it wasn't, and then it, that was the end of the, the, end of the, the relationship. Yeah, it was Hey, hang on one second. Microphone back in. Do you want to just come on stage? <laughs> go on. It was a Tinder date. A what? A, a Tinder, Tinder date. date. Mark Tinder. Is <laughs> <laughs> a dating app that you can get on your phone. Have you heard of people swiping right and left to, on people they like? Is it like Grinder? <laughs> Are you aware? This one <laughs> might have been Grindr, like Grinder. <laughs> okay, so she went on a Grinder date and. <laughs> no. No. A Tinder <laughs> That's date. That's a different thing. Okay. So it's a Tinder date. A Tinder date. Is it actually um, called a Tinder date? Is that what you call yeah, it? Yeah, like, like, so you've met somebody on Tinder, like it's just it's someone who you think looks attractive and won't kill you, and, <laughs> and you, you meet them in real life, and, they and say, usually I you go to a bar or something, <laughs> but this person took them to an immersive experience of the Wolf of Wall Street. This person said, you know, I think you remind me of Jordan Belfort. <laughs> Why don't you come and... Okay, so they went on the Tinder date. They bonded over a love of... Classic cinema, great directors. Although she hadn't seen Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> because she loves classic cinema. Very good, well done. <laughs> he had some money to burn and said, let's do this thing. Is he a city boy? Yep. Of course oh. he is! <laughs> uh, picked her up, took her there. She didn't see him again. Wow. I and they were there for... Days. Five hours. <laughs> five hours, I think. How long? Five hours. Five hours? Wow! What but number date was that? Two. Oh, wow. <laughs> five hours of being Jordan Belfort. <laughs> That's, honestly, what a terrible experience. <laughs> My... So this is sorry. This is in no way connected. This to when I was younger, um, I went with a, a girlfriend and I took her to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because, <laughs> because, because it it was quite hard to see at that point because it only had a GLCX certificate, so you couldn't see it in just any cinema. You had to see it in cinemas that had the you know, allowed to see it. And I uh, and I took her to, to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And about sort of halfway through, maybe half an hour through, she said, "This is horrible. I'm leaving." And I said, "Okay," and she. <laughs> That's a little bit like the scene in Taxi Driver. No, it's not a little bit like the scene in Taxi Driver. Where he takes it to a cinema. No, I know, I know what scene you're referring to, Jack. You know, I have seen Taxi Driver. Thank you. Anyway, listen, thank you. That, is, that was the most unexpected intervention of the evening. Thank and you. Thank you, for, thank you very, very much. Nice. Shall we do it? No. Oh. Okay, if It'd we, make a good podcast. We, we wouldn't, because you can't talk about it. <laughs> But it's not, it's not like enforceable by law, right? I don't think so. No, okay. All right, we should think. Because you know Jack does escape rooms. This is, this is one of Jack's great hobbies. I, 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 I like escape rooms, yeah. It's, it's, like it's okay, a... you can be proud of it. My name's Jack Howard, I do escape rooms, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, I don't know if this is going to be a similar thrill. Like, escape rooms are an hour, not five. 
think that sounds like torture. Should we do an escape room together? Yeah, I'd, okay. be, I'd be well up All for right, that. so that's the next two Tinder dates, isn't it? <laughs> They're not. <laughs> Grinder dates, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I only know about Grinder because there's a... Never mind. No, well, I know, <laughs> whoa! Finish that sentence. Because there's, fr- okay, there's, a, there's a friend of mine who I was about to tell you who it was, and I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't mind if I told you who it was, but I don't know that they wouldn't mind, so I'm not going to. So blank... Yeah, blank. S- explained to me once what Grinder was, oh, and right. I literally felt like somebody who had run headfirst into the 21st century like a wall, and went, "Oh my God, <laughs> that's a real thing!" You know, it was like I'd woken up one morning and I was living in a Cronenberg movie. So anyway, um, I noticed that time has run on terribly just because we suddenly got distracted by the Wolf of Wall Street room. Um, if anybody has any questions they would like to ask us, um, I mean, obviously, clearly anything at all except about Grinder and Tinder. Yeah, straight up at the back. At the back there, can we? In- um, we'll blue. pass the microphone down to you just because obviously for the podcast point of view we'd like you know we'd like to record whatever it is that you say i think do we have to do the thing which says bear in mind anything you say is being recorded and may well go out on the podcast it's fine and can be used against you yeah okay um hello hi. uh jack you talk a lot online about your massive uh what <laughs> Massive love for Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Um, I was wondering if Maybe have... next time you st- structure a sentence, like, be very wary of where you put the gaps. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the MCU and Sony taking Spider-Man out of the MCU and where that might be moving forwards, mm. if that might be a good thing? Uh, I, my, my short answer on that is that I think that it's going to be fine. I think, I think that... Uh, Disney own too much stuff. Uh, and if they, <laughs> Just in general. In general, they own too much stuff. So if it happens to be taken out of it, it would be fine. And I don't think that will happen. Personally, I believe that they, they, what's happened is that... The, uh, who's aware of what's going on at the moment with Spider-Man? Basically, the, uh, the original deal was that Sony would make these films and I think Disney had 5% of the profits... Right. And then, because they've now made five movies with Spider-Man, they've come back and they've said, <laughs> we want 50% of the profits. <laughs> and so Sony have gone, no. And, and, and they've now backed off and said, we're keeping Spider-Man now, you can't have him. Which I think will resolve itself. I think they will come back and they'll go, uh, 25%. Also, can you put Venom in the MCU? And they'll go, yeah, all right. And, and they'll keep him, because there's no way they're going to let that happen. Can you imagine if Sony started making Spider-Man movies again? General audiences would be really confused as to why he's not mentioning Tony Stark anymore. <laughs> and it would be really bad for Disney and for Marvel, so I reckon they'll do whatever they can to, to keep him. Um, that's my thoughts on that. And presumably, if Sony did, it wouldn't be Tom... No, it would be still be Tom Holland. Oh. Yeah, like he's still contracted, and so is John Watts to direct. So the contract would just go over to... It would just carry on, because it's still a Sony film. It's just that Disney are producing them now. It's a very strange thing that's going on between them that I thought would never happen in the first place, and so I'm not surprised that it's ended up being a bit of a mess. Um, but I think it will resolve itself, and ultimately, it doesn't matter, does it? It's fine. It'll be all right. That's how I feel about it. That's a very good answer. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Take a question down here. Hello. Hello. Um, you've talked about two films tonight, which, Mark, you've thought were both basically too long, not lean enough. Talked too much, uh, too much basking in the, in the world and not enough plot. Um, are there any qualities of a film that can justify it being over two hours long and allow you to enjoy something that actually is a long film? There was a... 
uh, a period back in the 1980s when um, I was working for a magazine called Video Trade Weekly, because that's where I sort of I, you know started doing that stuff. And um, there was this whole uh, discussion about you know, directors always have to fight against the two-hour rule, which is that studios want everything cut down to two hours, and it's to do with turning the films around fast enough to sell popcorn in between. And, you know, isn't it ridiculous that these things are two hours long? Isn't that thing arbitrary? And now here comes video, which is a medium in which the length of time of the film doesn't matter. And there was, um, a little bit later on, there was the, 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 the recut of Aliens, and they re it was it actually it wasn't even a recut it was the original cut before they took the 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 the, the young daughter subplot out and it you know so they put it back in and uh, I wrote a piece about it and it was it, the the tagline for aliens that time was the original tagline was this time it's war and it was this time it's more and <laughs> Nigel Floyd had interviewed Cameron and Cameron had said you know it's like with records you get a 45 single version you get a 12 inch dance remix you get the album version and I remember me and Nigel going this is brilliant this is brilliant this is liberating this is brilliant this is great and I remember about 20 years later having a conversation going god we what were we talking about the short version was always fine and I remember talking to Kim Newman who said when do you think it will become socially acceptable to accept to, to admit that you think the short version of the Wicker Man is actually better than the restored version of the Wicker Man and he was being slightly facetious but there was a point when we actually were involved in a fight to allow directors to make longer movies. I mean, there was, you know, the two-hour rule is a fairly recent thing. Many, you know, older movies were much, much more than, than two hours long. And clearly there are some absolutely brilliant movies that are five, six, seven hours long. Um, my Friedkin once said this thing. He said, the problem is after two hours, your head can go with it, but your ass gives up. And there is, there is a sort of, I mean, you know, he, again, he was being facetious, but there is a sort of truth in that. And I was the person who campaigned for The Exorcist to be longer. But I think it's not that there is a, there is a thing that justifies a movie being longer. I mean, I absolutely love Jackie Brown, and that's way over two hours long. Um, there are films that I love that sort of... I mean, I remember seeing Ben-Hur for the first time, and I never thought, this is too long. Then again, I never watched Apocalypse Now and thought, this film's great, but it's a bit short. You need to put in the extra bit with the, you know, the, the conversation at the dinner. It's all to do with the length of time the story needs. And... That's why I came up with this cliched thing about it's the 2001 rule, which is if Kubrick can go from the dawn of man to the birth of a new species in this period of time, and if you can't tell a story in that period, you are not trying. But, um, but it's, it is all to do with the internal rhythm of the film, and the only thing I can say is it's that cut your lovies rule. Take every scene out and see whether the film still works. There is something to be said for living in an environment... I mean, you know, a film like The Quattrovolti, for example, I mean... I'd say you couldn't take anything out of that, but it's not for narrative reasons, because there's one scene in which a goat walks up the side of a hill for about 15 minutes, but I think it's absolutely transcendent and wonderful. I've just seen this documentary about bees, you know, the Macedonian film about bees. You know, could you lose the scene when she climbs up the side of the mountain and take... Well, yeah, but, I mean, that's what the film was about. It's, each film is individually different, but the thing that I admire is brevity and cutting to the chase, and the thing that I get fed up with is, oh, come on, you know, who's this here for? Is it here for you or is it here for me? Not you. Is it here for the director or is it here for me? And that's, that's, that's my problem. Also, it may just be that I'm becoming an old fart. <laughs> because, you know, there is a point when you just... You, you... See, that answer could have been a lot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. 
Okay, the behind you. Hi, guys. Uh, I spent most of my time, like you were saying, Jack, Departed's one of your films when you were a kid growing up. When I was growing up, my best friend and his dad were, we were historians, and war films were the things that we kind of just, that was where I spent my time. So a question for you guys is, what's your top three war films? Oh, that, that is difficult. Oh, yeah, yeah. You want to go first? Um, I mean, obviously, I think, I mean, I mean, I don't mind going back and forth. Yeah, I, okay, fine. So Saving Private Ryan has got to be in there. Like, obviously, I mean, it's an obvious choice, but it is just brilliant. Just for, just for the opening sequence alone. Sometimes I just put that on. Sometimes I just put on the opening sequence to watch that. Um, it's, it's so... It, it hasn't aged a day. It's so brilliant, and it's clearly inspired everybody else after that. It's the original. It's the, the best version of, of that, I think. And it manages to get laughs in, which is really odd. Like, this strange human response to seeing somebody get hit in the head... And it not kill them, and then take the, the the helmet off and check that it worked, and then get hit in the head and die is like funny, but it's strange that it happens in this horrific scene. Um, yeah, I think that Seven Private Ryan is absolutely one of the greatest war films um, ever made. It's a naff choice, but Dan Busters, because I just think Dan. But I mean, I know that everyone says Dan Busters is a great movie, but Dan Busters is a great movie, and then you see it again on television. You go, that's a really great movie. For ages and ages, Peter Jackson's been talking about remaking it, and Stephen Fry's written the, the script for it, and you can see why. It's just a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really solid film, and it really holds up. Can I go for Apocalypse now? I'm, you know, I because the, but the, the, the shortest version. I don't want the long. You know, I don't. <laughs> It, because it doesn't need all that other stuff. I mean, I know, there's a, there, I know that there's a load of things wrong with Apocalypse Now, but I do remember seeing Apocalypse Now for the first time when it was in 70 mil in Leicester Square and the helicopters coming round at the beginning and the doors and just thinking, this is an, a completely out-of-body experience. And, you know, and uh, the fact that there's that brilliant sort of filmmaker's odyssey behind it that Coppola said, you know, it, the story was it, was, it was Heart of Darkness. We were out in the money, we had too, out in the jungle, we had too much time, we had too much money, and one by one we all went mad. And that is a film made by somebody going completely mad, and yet the film itself is brilliant. Um, a recent one, which might be a bit of a lame choice, but I suppose Dunkirk was pretty yeah. special. I remember seeing that, and as somebody who is an aspiring sort of director of, of, of that level, to watch that and go, how have you made this make sense? How have you mostly constructed a bunch of shots of planes flying around and people running on beaches and hiding and nobody really talking to each other and made me understand exactly what's happening? I just, I'm in awe of Christopher Nolan and I think that he created a feeling of, like the, the first time, I don't even remember, did you see it in IMAX? Dunkirk. Yeah, so in 70 millimeter, it was just, this is unbelievable. Yeah, the, the, the first time when you're sitting in your seat and it's calm and, the, and the, the papers are falling from the sky and then all of a sudden you hear the crack of gunfire and it sounds like no other gunfire I've heard in a movie before. It's so scary and realistic. Um, yeah, I think that, that that is one of my favorite as well. And then All Quiet on the Western Front, just because, you know, it's, but you sort of scrunch your face, but it is, it does still work. I mean, it's, it is one of the things that you would show to somebody is this is a way of doing a war movie in an interesting way. Jack? I can't think of a third one, I'm afraid, right now. Am I, am, my eyes are going a bit blank. Platoon or? I haven't seen Platoon. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those ones I haven't seen. Um, I th I think just for just for time, I think I'll just I'll just I'll leave it at that because otherwise I'm just gonna be here yep, going. Mm, uh, but like those are the ones that came straight to okay. my mind. 
Hi. Um, obviously, you've talked about Scorsese and Tarantino, two directors obsessed with music um, and in, known for their music in different ways. What would be your all-time favourite soundtrack? The one I, the two that come to my mind immediately are Hans Zimmer's score for Interstellar, which I think is one of the best he's ever done. It's so, so him and yet so not him. Um, the organ and and the synths and you know, it's so good. And then. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Atticus Ross. Yeah, their score for the social network. Like, if I'm just sitting at my computer, it makes me feel like I'm doing something important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing <laughs> lives. <laughs> I think, actually, I think those are brilliant choices. I mean, the honest answer from my point of view is Local Hero, because I, I have just played the Local Hero soundtrack to death. Because when I first saw the film, I fell in love with it. I went out, I bought the vinyl of the Knopfler soundtrack, and I could just play it over and over and over again. And it never, it never fails to take me back to that village, which of course doesn't exist. And I'm, I'm completely, I'm completely in love with it. I love Clint Mansell's score for Out of Blue, and that film got seen by almost nobody, the Carol Morley film. But I've, I've been playing that on sort of like hard rotation. And I got a vinyl of Anna Meredith's music for um, eighth grade, mm -hmm. which is, it's fantastic. It is, it's it? really good. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, and again, you put it on and you are right there in the, the world. I mean, I think we both feel the same way yeah. about eighth grade, that it's, it's just knockout, isn't yeah, it? Because you're really a great. huge Bo Burnham fan. Massive Bo Burnham fan, yeah. And I was, when I first saw it, I thought he would have done the music for it. I was yeah. surprised to find out he hadn't. Uh, and was so, a little bit like... Um, I was sort of fangirling a little bit when you had her on your show, and I, got, I was almost like, oh, hello, you worked on with Bo Burnham, and that, your music's really good. Oh, I'm, I'm going to stop talking now. Like, it was, <laughs> she's so cool. Um, I'm aware of the fact that it's astonishingly, it's 11 o'clock. Is um, it? It is, Holy yeah. Crap. That was why that thing kept flashing at us. I couldn't figure out why the timer was flashing at us. It, it was literally flashing at us, like, get off the stage. It is now 11 o'clock. Um, shall we risk it and do one last question? Okay, make it a good okay. question. You choose. I you think choose. you should all collectively shout one question. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, make it a good one, Jack. So... Um, I am a huge horror junkie as well. I know you always say about The Exorcist, but I want to know your top three <laughs> absolute shite horror movies. But so compelling you can't look away, because I would always say The Exorcist 2, where yeah. he spits the leopard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't look away from that. Yeah. What I mean, would I, you say? Yeah, I mean, I think Exorcist 2 is the worst film ever made. And, I'm, and what's, what's astonishing about it, and I mean, I have seen different versions of it. You know, people say, oh, you haven't seen the director's cut. Yes, I have. It's shit. And I, you know, and I mean, the hilarious thing is, when it was first released in cinemas, everyone laughed. And John Borman said, okay, we need to recut it. So the studio went, yeah, okay, fine. They recut it. Everyone laughed. And John Borman said, we need to recut it. And the studio said, nope, you've had two runs at it. That's, what, that's all you get. And, you know, the plot of Exorcist 2, The Heretic, is that Linda Blair... The reason she was possessed was because actually she was part of a new super race of good people who were breaking out, who were being picked off one by one by the demon Pazuzu on a world tour, apparently. The ghost of Father Merrin is still in the bedroom. Richard Burton flies to Africa on the back of a locust and meets James Earl Jones, who spits a leopard in the form of a large cherry, which then pierces his foot, and he wakes up in the Natural History Museum in New York. And then the house falls down. <laughs> and you go, I'm sorry, 
you were all out of your minds on crack when you wrote that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that, that, that is, I think it's genuinely astonishing, can't look away. I remember seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 for the first time and thinking, this is so bad, it's actually compelling. Because, I, I, because it was banned over here, and I went to America, and I, when I went to see my friend Tim Polgat, and I said, look, you know, I really want to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 because I can't see it in England, it's banned. And he went, really? I went, yeah, yeah, we went to a video store, and I got it, and I, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and watched it, and it was just spectacularly terrible. And Kim Newman said the best thing about it. He said... It's not just that Texas Chainsaw appears, to, appears not to have been made by the same person who made Texas Chainsaw 1. It appears to me made by somebody who hasn't actually seen Texas Chainsaw 1, which I think is true. And then the third one, although it's, it doesn't technically count as a horror movie, is the one which I've always cited as actually the worst film ever made, which is Oversexed Rug Suckers from Mars. And the reason I, I cite that is because when people say, oh, this is the worst film ever, and I talk about, you know, Exorcist 2... Oversex Rug Suckers from Mars was actually released. I mean, it was released on, I think it was Colorbox Video. And it's, it's a sort of, you know, it's an exploitation movie about a, a, a demonic uh, hoover. And it's, and it's, and it's, but it's made with that I kind of... I didn't know where that sentence was going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, it, but it's made with that kind of, hey, you know, it's, 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 so, it's so rubbish, it's brilliant. But you go, no, Plan 9 from Outer Space is so rubbish, it's brilliant. Oversex Rug Suckers from Mars is just shit. And, and literally... Like, you can't look away because it's, it's just so terrible. Well, there we are. That was me and Jack Howard live on stage at the London Podcast Festival. And to be honest, we enjoyed ourselves so much, I think we're going to do it again. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed doing the show. If you have enjoyed it, then remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and keep watching the skies. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.